Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. And that's the place we want you to go to become a part of this community radio station. This is the people's radio. Nobody else is making it happen but the people. And so we need people to volunteer their time like me. You could be a weekly programmer or maybe do a one-time access hour. Go to forwardradio.org, click on participate and let us know what you want to do. Or maybe chip in a few bucks to help keep us on the air. And this is a great community treasure that only takes $20 a day to keep on the air. So go to forwardradio.org and click on donate. Well, what we do each week here on Sustainability Now is gather folks from around the community who want to talk about social, economic, and environmental issues all at once and, and look for that bright future that works for everybody. And certainly a theme in our society today about things that aren't working for everybody is racism and the new anti-racist movement that I am so, so excited to see taking over. And for that reason, I'm really excited to get two L alumni up in here in the virtual studio with us. They're both joining us from Louisville today. Our two co-founders of Anti-Racism KY, a coalition focused on rooting out institutional racism in Kentucky state and local government policy. With me are OJ Alika, Dr. OJ Alika. Welcome, OJ. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. He uh, graduated from L in 2010, right? That's right. Exactly right. Man, I only got to L in 2009, so we only overlapped by a little bit. One special year. That's right. <laughs> What did you major in there? And then what did you go on to get your PhD in? I majored in marketing with a minor in political science. And I got my MBA from Bellarmine and also my PhD from Bellarmine in leadership and higher education with a focus on social capital for low-income students as they figure out what to do after high school. Yeah. Awesome work. Uh, also in the studio with us is Terrence Sullivan. Welcome, Terrence. Thank you for having me. Terrence is also a doctor in a way. He's a JD. Did you get your JD at L too? I did. Wow. Yes. The Brandeis School of Law. What a fantastic place, huh? Oh, it's a great place. I recommend anyone who is looking <laughs> at law schools to go there. But you also did your undergrad at UofL, graduated in 2009, right? Yes, 2009. I did public policy with a minor in economics. Awesome. Awesome. So that's your history, but you all have gone on already to do some amazing things, right? So, OJ, why don't you tell us a little bit about your path to become president of the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities? Well, it really is a, a pretty interesting path. It's interesting to me, at least, I suppose, but it started <laughs> right after graduation. Uh, Terrence graduated in 2009 because he's smart, graduated on time. I took an extra year <laughs> to play around student government and had the chance to be student body president in that final year. And that experience showed me the importance of having leaders who will listen again to the people this is the people's radio station who will listen to the people and then try to advocate for them on their behalf. And I learned that the way that I could be useful was through the educational experience that I had that largely started with my parents. My parents grew up in abject poverty in Nigeria, but he came to the United States, lived the American dream, as they say. He got an education. He got a Ph.D. Mm. and was able to put his three children through college and change the trajectory of the Olekas. Uh, that's my family for forever. And I wanted to do that for kids 
in low-income communities anywhere. So I taught with Teach for America. It's yeah. an organization that asks people to teach in low-income communities for two years as a minimum commitment with the hopes that they'll go on and want to change educational opportunities for kids and families that live in low-income communities for the rest of their life. And that's what happened for me. I taught middle school math in St. Louis, came back to Kentucky to recruit for Teach for America for a couple years. But it was in that experience teaching that I realized Again, if you have good quality educational outcomes for kids and then good career opportunities for adults, you you can effectively end poverty overnight. Now, what we understand, obviously, and it's the point of anti-racism Kentucky, is that there are many systems at play that make those things especially difficult for low-income families, but uh, low-income black families in particular. And so I wanted to get involved in, in the policy aspect of things. And I worked on a campaign for governor that focused on those two things, educational opportunity and economic reform. My guy was unsuccessful, but it ended up allowing me to reach out to state treasurer Allison Ball, who was a candidate at the time. I worked for her and, and put forward some good policy ideas in her office on financial literacy and opportunities like that, again, for low-income families. And during that process was when I got my MBA, my PhD. And my PhD uh, colleagues in, in my cohort would always laugh at me. They say, OJ, you care a whole lot about education. You care a whole lot about politics and policy. What job in the world combines all those things? I said, well, maybe one day I'll find out, put these degrees to use. And, and it actually ended up being at the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities. My responsibility as the president is to advocate for good public policy that benefits independent colleges and universities in Kentucky. In Louisville, those are institutions like Bellarmine University and Spalding University, which again, consequently, are trying to do really significant work on race-related reform in higher education. When I took the job in December, this wasn't the forefront of everybody's mind. Neither was a global pandemic. Nobody <laughs> asked me how I would handle a respiratory virus during right. my interview. Right. Uh, but that's what we find ourselves doing. But it's been incredibly rewarding work. Uh, our institutions, on average, have about 40% of students who are Pell eligible. Again, those are students who typically come from low-income backgrounds. And people wouldn't realize that. So I'm excited to talk about that and share the good news of our institutions. Obviously, this is a radio show with people who have ties with the, to the University of Louisville. So I'd be remiss if I didn't call out what Dr. Ben Deputy was trying to do over there as well with her anti-racism work in higher education. So it's a it's a love fest all around in higher ed, but it's been an incredible opportunity to be president of IQ. Uh, and I'm happy to be with you all today. That's awesome. I promise we're going to talk about anti-racism KY, but we got to get Terrence's backstory too. Because <laughs> you are now a Thurgood Marshall Clio Fellow, and you got to tell us what that is. And you were a Leadership Louisville Bingham Fellow in 2015. And yes. now you're working at the state level, right? Tell us about that. Yes. So I'll start pretty far back and just kind of build up to where I um, am. I can answer the, before I'll forget that you asked about the Thurgood yeah. Marshall Fellowship. The Clio Fellowship is for Black professionals and Black students entering the legal profession. You apply, you go through some, basically you do pre-law school after junior year of college. And then after you graduate, you oh. go to a law school and replicate your first year. Because I don't know if people are aware, but more than 50% of the people who start, they fail out in the first year. And for Black students who do happen to get there, there are even a higher percentage of the people who fail out that first year. Yeah. And so the hope of that Clio Fellowship is, you know, we'll give you a taste of what is expected of you. And so when you have that first year where there's that cut in December and then that cut in May, um, hopefully you're on the 
right side of that because you've learned how to write a brief. You've learned how to mm. do your oral argument and you are more prepared than some of the other students who are coming in who may have had other ways to get that experience, possibly from family who was in the business or something like that. And so it's a pretty special fellowship or scholarship that is afforded to people just to get you maybe closer to a level playing field when mm -hmm. you step in. But before getting to that, I'm from Madisonville in Western Kentucky, and getting to here was slightly different than the path for OJ, just in the sense that my family, a very large family, felt like we're half of Madisonville. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm related to everyone there, but of that, very few had much of anything. We, at times, would have six families staying at my granny's house because no one had a place to live. No one had money sharing food with that many people. Uh, mm. We were very thankful for those 29-cent hamburgers at McDonald's. Because, but no one I knew had done the college thing could see kind of the things that education brought you. And most people didn't graduate high school, a lot didn't finish middle school. And for me, I was fortunate enough to be selected to be in some of the gifted classes with predominantly white students who their families did have those things. And yeah. it was, you go to their houses and it's like, oh man, you have <laughs> food in the refrigerator? Dang, you have a second refrigerator in a garage? Like, this is... I, I was like, how do you get food in your first refrigerator enough to have a second? And it seemed like one of the things was education and being able to open some more doors to different jobs that weren't cleaning houses or working at the chicken plant or any of that. And so I knew that one thing I really wanted to do was do well in school. And mm. But to do that, I was like, I really want to get to college and be able to do something about these situations for people. And so I, I also wanted to do well in sports, just open up any door possible to get me right. to that next level. And so fortunately, both of those things worked out for me. <laughs> I had a full scholarship at UofL and I also did a little track. And so it was just a, a way to start. And yeah. what I wanted to do was I always wanted to work in this policy space because I wanted to go and address those systems that play as OJ mentioned, that were some of the inhibitors to that success for people in my family. Because one thing that bothers me is the assumption that people that don't have anything aren't hard workers. Because yeah. in my experience, the people who don't have anything are the hardest workers you'll see. <laughs> um, you're balancing three jobs, trying to figure all that out while you have children. You can't afford childcare. And so you have to learn how to work hard and smart. And so mm. it's not a lack of working hard. It's just some of these systems that are pervasive in the community keep you from achieving further. So what I always wanted to do was to be in a position to help um, people like me and people like my family to take advantage of some opportunities, even though opportunities don't really exist or it feels like those opportunities don't exist. And so in undergrad, I did law and public policy. I wanted to focus on one day writing policy and helping shape policy. And my, my dream was to run for Senate and oh. uh, draft some legislation that really got to the root of the problem. And I have kind of steered away from the political side of it or running for office, but I did want to continue that mindset of making change through policy. And so I also studied economics to see how some of that business side and money works. And so after undergrad, I went to law school, still focused on not going to do the courtroom Perry Mason 
<laughs> law and order thing, but I wanted to learn more about how laws work together and how I could learn, you know, statutory construction to help in building solid legislation and solid laws that really look at all sides and really focus on how we can do the best for people. And so after law school, I went and worked for Metro Council in Louisville, and I was working in District 6 which has California and some of the some of the poorest zip codes in Louisville and by definition some of the poorest zip codes in Kentucky and I helped do some of the ordinances to try to help with that community and moved on to go work for the General Assembly at Legislative Research Commission. And again, I just wanted to help focus on writing policy that was good and good for people. And along the way, I've taught long government at Central High School for two years and also went and worked for some advocacy organizations, always following that focus on poverty and opportunity and trying to help. And ultimately, that led me to where I am today as the executive director for the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights. And now I am in a position that I can help at least some sides of that system of unfairness. If there's discrimination somewhere, my office is able to help people to seek a resolution that helps them. And I did not know that you were located in the Habern building. We are office mates. I had no idea. That's right. That's right. A lot um, of good stuff <laughs> happening over here. So that, that was good to hear. I yeah. know more people I can, you know, if the elevator, so you were well aware that the elevators go out a that's, lot. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> I'm getting good at the so, stairs. Yeah. So I may see you on the stairs soon. <laughs> My guests today here on Sustainability Now are two amazing UofL alum. When I just heard your backstory, I'm even more amazed. We're speaking today with Terrence Sullivan, J.D. He is now the executive director of the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights and O.J. Alika, who is a doctor now and a president of the Association of Independent Kentucky Colleges and Universities. And I'm really glad you shared that deep, rich backstory because it personalizes a lot of these issues. And it also talks about some of the things we We've already got going on to try and tamp down institutional racism, but we know it's not nearly enough, right? And that's why you all got together to found Anti-Racism KY, which is fairly new, right? This this is post-George Floyd's murder, right? And tell us what this coalition of people looks like. Who are some of the members of Anti-Racism KY? Well, this coalition looks like Kentucky. That's one of the best things about it. It is full of people who come from every single background that you can imagine. The, the most important thing to understand about who we are is that we are bipartisan, as I say. Terrence says nonpartisan. <laughs> the most important thing is that we are not a partisan group. We've got Republicans. We've got Democrats. We've got liberals. We've got conservatives. We've, we've got progressives. We have people who describe themselves in every which way who come from rural Kentucky, who come from urban Kentucky, who come from Lexington, Louisville, Eastern, Western, Northern, all across the entire region of the state, because we care and we believe that racism is a systemic and institutional problem that we need to get rid of. And you're right, this is something that was born out of the tragedies of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Uh, as I, I like to joke with some folks, anti-racism Kentucky is even younger than my daughter, who was born May 11th. Oh, so wow. This is a, a Congratulations. Very, it, it's a very new project. Yeah. Of course, the idea, the focus is not new. 
But what we've tried to do is tackle it from the perspective of elevating voices that haven't been elevated before to look at things that, from a, a policy perspective. And, and the elevation of voices was really Terrence's idea. So I don't want to steal uh, all that thunder, but I think that's an important aspect to point out about who we are. Thank you, OJ. Just to kind of expand on the elevating voices piece of that, for people who have worked in the policy space and people who have been paying attention, it seems, one, that there are people and voices who are frequently heard when it comes to specific issues. And, you know, for good or bad, sometimes they do a lot of good, but sometimes things don't happen. And that's not to say that those people aren't trying, but I think at least in Kentucky and in the spaces that I've existed in, there are people who have great ideas, but they feel like, well, I'm not one of those voices that Mm. gets to make the call and gets to be in the press conference and gets to speak to the legislators. And so it's like, well, you know, my idea might not be that good after all, or I don't know how to get to sit at the table because I don't know where the table is. (laughs) And so what we hoped to do was bring all those people to that table with GPS directions to say, here's the table, lay out your ideas, and we want to run with it and we want to vet them and we want to see how we can make that happen. And the reason I say nonpartisan over bipartisan is because these issues shouldn't have any partisanship attached to them at all. We should just focus on doing right and doing all that we can to weed out institutional racism. And so I don't like having even the thought of, and I appreciate that it's bipartisan because to your original question, it really does look like Kentucky. We have groups that have pretty diverse makeup demographically, geographically, socioeconomically. It's a really good mix of people who reached out and said, I want to be part of the solution. And not just part of it, they offered solutions. Mm. And that's what we're going to do is talk about how we can make those solutions a reality and make things better for all of us. Well, I want to specifically ask you about that, that nonpartisan part of this. It's almost crazy to me that anti-racist work would get politicized in the first place. It's not like one party has racism in their platform, at least not explicitly, right? So let's talk about that. Why why do you think this work of doing anti-racist work gets politicized? And what what do you think is a good strategy for trying to avoid it? Well, I, I love this question, Justin, because I, I hear about it a lot. If, if we're adding our political affiliations here, I am uh, a Republican, and it's a conversation that my side has quite frequently. And I think a lot of this deals with the language that we use and the ideology associated with that language. For example, my party will talk a lot about opportunity, individualism, family, hmm. those types of values that are shared by everybody. The challenge is if you don't inject the reality that bias inhibits a lot of those things for people, then it gets difficult to see it and difficult to understand it. It's it's the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter debate. Absolutely, every life matters, all lives do. But unfortunately, if there is hate in somebody's heart, and, and this is the essence of what racism is, it's the hate in your heart and the implementation of that hate in any possible way that you can. If it's calling someone a name, if it's shutting someone out of a job, if it's not giving them a loan, if it's not giving them an education, if it's suspending their black children, it's all of those things that then create an institutional or systemic problem that you can't necessarily see. So while a law might suggest that all lives matter, the implementation says that black lives do not which makes it really hard because then the language isn't there on my side to say, well, it's clear that we value family. It's clear we value education. It's clear we value opportunity. Why do we have to explicitly say race? 
which in a weird way, it's become a warming and genuine conversation where Republicans, and, and look, these are elected officials, these are business leaders, these are people who haven't had these conversations before, saying, I understand the importance and the necessity of not only naming this for what it is, that unfortunately racism and, and therefore institutional or systemic racism is a problem in our country, mm. but then saying, what can we do to make it better? How can we actually change it? What does success look like? Mm. So I think that's how politics has gotten into it. But I mean, you're absolutely right. This isn't a partisan thing. It's nonpartisan in what the outcomes ought to be. And it should be bipartisan what the solutions are to get there. Yeah, I thought that was a perfect summation of everything I was thinking. <laughs> um, but just since we're um, outlining this, and we do think it's important to mention, we're not on the same side of the political spectrum. I am a Democrat. And I think that's partly what led to us talking about how to structure this because we have similar or the same values and it's how do we go about those things is where people tend to discuss the divergence of the parties. And we, we really want this space to be one where we can coalesce and say, you know, we want to follow those same values and go about it in a way that makes sense for both of us or for all yeah. parties because there are more than two as people tend to forget <laughs> but what we want to do is find ways that steer away from the obvious or consistent political spewing that goes with any issues and that's something that's unfortunate it's a tale of the times everything gets politicized masks became political if, oh my gosh, know, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't so get that we, either. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so definitely something, it, it seems like anything that can shift into proposed policy, people try to find a political attachment to it. And that's what we're just hoping to avoid. And I think that historically, going back to OJ's points about the views that the Republican Party might find, I feel, I like to preface everything by saying it's like, me yeah, yeah generalize but i personally feel that at least the people in my party who i'm around have these goals and they want the government to help in facilitation of those goals and sometimes that is where i felt that divergence begins because there's the self-reliance and you can get your community or participate more in the process and then you can change the system and working within the systems that exist. And sometimes it can be politicized when you start to point out your view of deficiencies that are within that system that exists. Mm. And so in doing this work, we want to make sure that if we are highlighting some deficiencies, that we're going at it in a way that is together and not casting aspersions on any side whatsoever, but saying, we see this problem and we want to fix it. If you have an issue with the foundation in your house, you don't have a contractor come and look at it and say, well, you know, I don't necessarily want to do it the way contractors do it because I don't agree with them. I'm gonna ask <laughs> an artist to come and draw what my foundation should look like. And they might have a great picture of what it should look like, but if they're not trained in or if they're not trying to do it the way that it's supposed to work and fix it, it's not going to be very successful. And so we want to bring people to the table that want to both address the problem and address the problem the right way. 
Wow. Yeah. I feel the, the air lightning when you all talk. I mean, it's just this partisanship has been so oppressive to, to us making progress that this kind of talk, oh man, it's very, it's very hopeful to me, <laughs> very enlightening. Um, but it's not just about politics and hope. It's also about healing, right? And one of your stated missions at Anti-Racism KY is to create a space for collective healing. So tell me what you all think that looks like. And man, how on earth do we go about healing racism's deep, deep wounds in America? I mean, they stretch right back to the founding of the country and right back here in Kentucky and Louisville, too. Right. This is this runs deep. So how do we how do we create that space for collective healing? I think it looks a lot of different ways. Terrence, you you can start this one off. I've been blabbering for far too long. Oh, well, I do think it does look it looks different depending on where you're coming from, but it, you're right in your assessment, Justin. It's been here from the inception of this country. Our country was built to be wealth and status as it, that it is on the back of racism. And I think part of it is acknowledging that fact. Yeah, We've built a very powerful and wealthy nation. And part of that was because we worked hard to ensure that we could have free labor in building up that nation. And now what I think healing looks like is not pointing fingers, but and not saying, oh, you all did this and you did this, but just acknowledging how we got to where we are and then agreeing on a way to move forward. And so I think this type of work is a great start because as OJ said, this coalition looks a lot like Kentucky and it's a lot of together to say, we, we see this issue we see some of the problems and the resulting outcomes that have come from the lasting effects of racism and we want to do something about it. And I think as a, as a black person, I feel more motivated and inspired by even just having the conversation. I don't even necessarily care as much about people presenting the solution of what healing looks like. Healing to me is the fact that people want to find it. And hmm. that's what's moving to me. And OJ texted me after one of the policy calls the other day and was like, these calls give me energy. And it's funny because I said pretty much the same thing from one of the calls that I was doing with one of the policy groups. And it's just really great to hear some of the things that people are saying and some of the observations people have made who haven't really felt like they've been able to share those observations outside of their small or select circles. And okay, now- yeah you hear so much. And huh. I think that's what healing looks like is people getting to participate and try to tear down these walls and systems that have built up over time. Yeah. I, I want to share that energy that we had on that call, Terrence, because it, it goes directly into this question, Justin, that you asked. Healing is being heard in mm. a lot of cases and specifically black women. Yes. have not heard. They've been ignored. They've been marginalized of us, the three of us, as a matter of fact, in, in this conversation have not been. In the end right. that particular call was a Black woman sharing her lived experiences with the healthcare sector and talking about how she felt she wasn't getting the care that was necessary in being given to others. And it was an interesting conversation because there was somebody else in that conversation who was a white male who acknowledged some ways that he had been hurried or rushed in that particular field with regard to a woman of color. And he was sharing how he wishes he could have done things differently. 
Now he learned from that experience. So here you've got a white male talking about how he wishes he could have done things differently. And you got a black woman who's talking about how she wishes she could get the proper and fair care and treatment hmm. that she deserves. And then you have that, the research tells us that this type of thing happens all the time. There hmm. is a study pretty prominent that mentioned how, I think it was about 50% of white residents, as in students who have finished medical school, aren't yet practicing physicians outside of or there in their residency, they felt that black people felt less pain, that their skin was tougher. Wow. And so you imagine what that looks like in terms of pain, care management, wow. treatment, diagnoses, and, and then you start to wonder or think or realize why life expectancy might be worse, why chronic pain is worse, why these healthcare outcomes, why these health outcomes are the way that they are. So it was incredibly powerful to hear this black woman speak the realities of her existence and the rest of us listen. Mm. And have a white male acknowledge challenges that he had been a part of in the past and how they were wrong and how we were all working together to fix it, to make it right in Kentucky. To me, that's the healing sure. that we don't have enough, that we don't talk a lot about, but that's the type of thing that our work is, is trying to do. That's awesome. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to the co-founders of Anti-Racism KY, UofL alumni OJ Alika and Terrence Sullivan. And the best way for folks to follow you all, is that on Twitter at Anti-Racism KY or how should folks plug in? Sure. Twitter, the at Anti-Racism KY, Facebook, the ARC initiative. Um, make sure it's the one that has Kentucky in it because I recently realized there was one with Noah's Ark. Oh, um, it's it's ARK, oh, anti-racism ARK. Kentucky. Um, good on Facebook, but they don't allow names with racism in the title. So yeah, good for Facebook. And you can also email us at um, antiracismky at gmail.com. We are answering our emails um, <laughs> slowly but surely. It's, it's the two of us. I'm starting this new position. OJ is managing a new life. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, we respond. It might be a day or two, but oh. we do respond. But social media and all of that is a really good way to get involved and to know what's going on. Um, we are about to begin our large presentations of what some of those policy ideas are that have come in. And so now would be a good time for people to start if they haven't already getting in there so they can get those messages and know when each group is having those presentation of policies just to kind of show where we are at this point before mm. we fine tune some of those initiatives and pick what we're moving forward with. That's great. Before, and for those groups, uh, as Terrence has outlined, obviously, please do make sure you reach out to us on Twitter, on on. Facebook and at Gmail, we've got eight different working groups in eight different policy areas for listeners who are interested. We've got agriculture, which is focusing on food, food deserts, obviously the things you might be familiar with or not familiar with. Criminal justice, which speaks for itself. We've got education, economic development, health, housing, generational wealth, uh, and workplace and generational wealth to, to go back to that really quickly that's financial literacy that's how do you build wealth over time with workplace those are things like promotional opportunities boards and how they look with regard to the diversity and the makeup of the community and also how different laws or things might impact people from different backgrounds so it's it's some incredible work uh, and as Terrence mentioned 
the ideas that people are coming up with are fantastic. It is born out of lived experiences. It's born out of people's background and expertise and, and works on it for the process. For your listeners, to really quickly wrap this portion up, it is an iterative process. Yeah. As in the, the initial presentations may or may not be the, the final book of policy that we take to Frankfurt and that we recommend to local governments across Kentucky which is both an, an honest thing and a good thing. We <laughs> are doing something that, quite frankly, is, is unprecedented. As Terrence mentioned, we're trying to elevate voices, which means we're really asking people to participate. And the knowledge and experience of what is a statutory change, what is a executive level change or a legislative change, or what needs to be done at the state or federal or local level, that knowledge is different with all of our folks. But we welcome their input and we welcome their knowledge because that's the way that you can really get a people-centered change done. That's great. So all are welcome. Check them out, uh, especially on Twitter at AntiRacismKY or on Facebook at The ARC Initiative Kentucky, right? Um, so when we were talking about healing, you know, what I really wanted to then ask you all about is this issue of removal of statues. Can we talk about that? We've seen the Jefferson Davis statue finally removed from the Kentucky Capitol. We've seen the Castleman statue here in Louisville put in storage. I know you both attended L back in the days when you had to walk past a Confederate war memorial there on 3rd Street every day on the way to class. How did it make you feel to see that memorial every day? And, and how did you feel when it finally came down? I'll, I'll, I'll start with this one. To your question on the statue on 3rd Street, that was really close to the law school, uh, yeah. matter of fact. Um, <laughs> and it, interesting to think about passing it en route from Old Louisville to my classes on law. And I took race in the law quite a few times, different iterations of that, of that class, just those focuses. And one thing that I always thought about that was this is not the place, partly because we were not in the Confederacy. So I've never seen a statue in Kentucky about the governor of California. It just doesn't doesn't logically make sense to me. But even beyond that, I think it's important to just say those types of relics to a time that was division and somewhat celebrated division, it seems out of place for that location. Now, there's a lot to be said about erasing history and not acknowledging history. And that I think that's where some of the differences can be is monuments or paintings or some depiction of troubling times in your past. We have paintings of slavery. We have paintings of things that happened with internment camps. We have things that depict these painful times in our country's history one thing to depict something and it's another thing to celebrate it and so for spaces i think that there can be spaces that are created for um, historical purposes to say you know this is a statue about something that happened this is a a place based on history and here are all these things that have <laughs> that happened over the course of history i mean I, I think people call them museums sometimes where they have things that are from the past but um, I, <laughs> I, I feel like those are more proper than having statues that are in the city, in the center of a town, like the town square celebrating mm -hmm. these individuals who um, their sole purpose was to disrupt this country based on racism. And I, I think having celebratory um, statues and placement of them is, is troublesome. 
And back to your question of earlier about healing, I think healing is part of acknowledging, hey, these people existed, these things happened, hmm. but we don't necessarily need to celebrate them in the town square and the rotunda of the people's house in the capital city. Exactly. I, I think Terrence has hit the nail on the head from the perspective of the historical context and what statues and, and figures we ought to be celebrating. And I just don't think it makes sense for a country that espouses itself in growth, in liberty, in progress over time to be supportive of celebrating people in our history that were leaders in the Confederacy. Mm. And again, to put a bow on this from the conservative standpoint or the Republican standpoint, there is a, a philosopher who is known in nerdy uh, conservative circles, Edmund Burke from uh, the 18th century, who was very focused on this idea of rights and what individuals have the right to do. And he often talked about how people have the right to the fruits of their industry and to the means of making their industry fruitful, which basically means you should be able to earn the money for the work that you do. We know that chattel slavery was explicitly designed so you could not do that. Yeah. And it just doesn't make any sense for anybody to consider themselves a liberty person or a liberty loving person and also be celebratory. Because again, the, the key understanding here is that when you put up a monument or a statue of a particular individual who is known in the broader culture for a specific thing, Jefferson Davis, he is known for being the president of the government that seceded from the United <laughs> States because they wanted to keep people enslaved. Okay. They wanted people as property. And that's what you're chiefly known for and you celebrate that individual, you're not promoting liberty. So it, again, has been heartwarming. Uh, when Terrence and I went down there, we were asked by a Republican state senator, and shortly thereafter, a Democrat governor called for the removal, and a board that had appointments from Democrat and Republican governors voted to remove it. So this was the bipartisan combination that led to the nonpartisan result of removing Jefferson Davis. So th these are positive things that I think Kentuckians should celebrate. Yeah, that's great. I, we're nearing the end of our time, and it's killing me because I would love to talk to you all day. This is so rich. But one last thing I want to ask you about. I know that anti-racism KY applauded when Metro Council here in Louisville passed Brianna's law to ban no-knock warrants. But surely that's just the tip of a giant iceberg that must be melted, right? Yes, a very large iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of listening to Black women, one, I think we need a statue of a Black woman. Two, the passing of Brianna's law through Metro Council was spearheaded by Black women, led with Tora Heron at ACLU, other Black women who are fed up, really. And I think your tip of the iceberg <laughs> is, is a good way to frame that because there are other things that need to happen. There are other things that will happen. There are state legislators who have been working on things like no-knocks for the state yeah. instead of just yeah. central council. There are things in motion right now to chip away at getting down to that iceberg. And I think that part of that is recognizing where we need change in the systems and where we need deeper conversation to identify some of those issues that others might not even know exist. I think OJ's example from the conversation the other day, I think that's pretty important for moving forward in any space is just listening more and understanding where people are coming from, because that's how you figure out what is below the surface with your uh -huh. iceberg. You, you have to know 
what other captains of ships have have seen out there in the water. I love it. And yeah, we're running with this analogy. Really, that's how you chart your your safe course is knowing where you can make progress. And mm. so I think that what we need to do is continue these conversations. I think from hearing some of the discussion back in our criminal justice working group, there are things people want and they once having those conversations. And I need to quickly add that these conversations in the working groups, they're very bipartisan in makeup to start those conversations. And we in I'm speaking of criminal justice, particularly because we were having some conversations about things like this and hearing divergent perspectives really got us to a good place. And I think that's what we need to do more of is having those all views heard Mm. so you can try to find where that movement can be made. That's great. OJ, anything you want to end up with really quick? Well, I'd say it is important to understand that there are several overlapping issues, and that's why the work of anti-racism Kentucky is incredibly important in this moment. Right now, we have the world's attention with regard to racial tension, social unrest, as relates to the treatment of Black bodies in this country. We are looking at it specifically from the context of law enforcement, police brutality, criminal justice broadly, but it's more than that. It is, in fact, the food that people have access to with regard to agriculture. It is, in fact, the educational experience and opportunity that Black students get all across the board. It is the economic opportunities that exist for jobs, for real growth in communities. It is, in fact, where people live, where they're able to live, the value that comes out of those homes, the wealth that they're able to build. It is, in fact, the workplace opportunities, the promotions, the boards. It's whether or not your community and the leadership structure look and feel the way that you look and feel and the way your community looks and feels. It is all of those things. And until we start to look at them collectively, we will never truly crush this iceberg in the way that we need to. So I am I am proud to be a co-founder of the work in anti-racism Kentucky. I am proud to be one of the, the newest leaders, I guess, uh, in this effort to end institutional and systemic racism in Kentucky. And I am hopeful that with people like Terrence, with the working group leaders that we've got and all the people across Kentucky who want to come together to fix this, that we will. We will make some significant change, and I'm excited for that day to come. I honor you both for this really important work. It is so refreshing to hear from you both. My guests here on Sustainability Now were O.J. Alika and Terrence Sullivan, co-founders of Anti-Racism KY. Follow them on Twitter or on Facebook at The Arc Initiative. Thank you both for taking the time today and joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Stay tuned. Coming up in just a minute, it's your community action calendar with all kinds of ways for how to dig in and make sustainability a reality now here on Forward Radio. Oh man, 
I hope you're feeling inspired after that great interview. Yes, we can see change if we work together across the aisle for racial justice. You're listening to Forward Radio Community, sponsored community-run radio. Radio for the people, by the people. We want you to go to forwardradio.org, click participate today and get behind the microphones. Click donate today to keep these microphones lit. It all happens because of you, my friends. And so does sustainability. And the whole point of sustainability now is to get you engaged in making it reality so now is the time on the show where we get our calendars out get our pencils sharpened and get ready to take action for sustainability this week several events uh, taking place this week that are recurring i want to let you know that every monday at 7 p.m folks gather at central park to walk around central park join your neighbors trash bags in hand as we work together to keep central park clean sponsored by the old louisville neighborhood council it's a great olmstead park in the heart of old louisville and you can help keep it clean every monday at 7 p.m meet up at central park And also, there are three opportunities this week to get out on the streets and support Black Lives Matter and justice for Breonna Taylor and David McAtee. Man, if you got charged up by that interview, well, here's three great opportunities to take part. First of all, if you've got kids, this Tuesday, August 4th at 6 p.m., it's a Smallidarity Kids March. It's time for the kids to lead. Calling all parents, teachers, mentors, let's follow the kids as they march from the McDonald's on Bardstown Road down to Tyler Park. We'll meet at 6 p.m. across from Mid-City Mall at 1245 Bardstown Road. And the march begins at 6.30. You're encouraged to bring all sorts of noisemakers, bubbles, glow sticks, and wear bright colored clothing. And there will be snacks at Tyler Park after the march. That's Tuesday, 6 p.m. at the McDonald's across from Mid-City Mall on Bardstown Road. Speaking of family, well, on Thursday, August 6th, uh, there is a weekly Mama's March. It starts at 5.45 p.m. at Brooke and Muhammad Ali, a march for every mother who heard George Floyd's cries, a march for every mother who has wept over the body of their child, a march for every mother who wants to leave a better world for their children. Meet at Brooke and Muhammad Ali at 5 p.m. and the march rolls at 5.45 down Muhammad Ali to Injustice Park for George, for Brianna, for Tamir, for Trayvon, for every child we have lost. That's this Thursday the 6th at Brooke and Muhammad Ali starting at 5.45 p.m. And then on Friday the 7th at 7 p.m. it's an LGBTQ Black Lives Matter march. They meet up at 7 p.m. at the KFC Yum Center there at 2nd and Main and the march rolls at 7.30 on Friday. This week, our focus is on black non-binary folks. Please bring signs and banners relating to black lives. For Friday evenings, join us as we march and say their names. Didn't get our Pride Month back earlier this year, but that doesn't mean we can't march this month. We want to honor the struggle for justice for black lives. The first Pride was a riot against police brutality, and so we march for Marsha, a black trans woman. We march for Sylvia. We march for every black trans woman murdered, for every black trans man attacked, for queer bodies, 
for black bodies. This is our fight too, and it's our turn to come out for black lives. That's this Friday, August 7th at 7 p.m., starting at the KFC Yum Center at 2nd and Main. You can learn more about all three of those great events to support Black Lives Matter out on the streets this week at facebook.com slash injustice square. Coming up on Wednesday the 5th at 8 p.m., it's a virtual screening and conversation with filmmakers on the new film Come Hell or High Water, The Battle for Turkey Creek. You can join Interfaith Power and Light to view the award-winning film about the unjust impact of climate change on an historic black community. And on Wednesday the 5th, you can tune in for a follow-up webinar to learn ways that we can practice being allies in the fight for safe and healthy black communities. The film follows the painful but inspiring journey of Derek Evans, a Boston teacher who moves home to coastal Mississippi when the graves of his ancestors are bulldozed to make way for the sprawling city of Gulfport. Over the course of a decade, Derek and his neighbors stand up to powerful corporate interests and politicians and face ordeals that include Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil disaster in their struggle for self-determination and environmental justice. Watch the film online anytime through August 4th and attend the webinar at 8 p.m. on Wednesday the 5th with filmmaker Leah Mahan and Derek Evans. It's moderated by Susan Stevenson. The conversation will center around the disproportionate impacts of climate change on black and brown communities. We'll also hear updates on the fight to achieve environmental justice for Turkey Creek and learn measures that we can all take through policy and direct action to create more just systems and healthier communities. Contributions for this fundraiser are $20 for an individual ticket or $50 for a congregational screening. Funds will go to support climate justice for Turkey Creek and to reimburse the small independent film team. You can get your tickets at interfaithpowerandlight.org. That's the word and all spelled out or at facebook.com slash interfaithpowerandlight. Again, watch the film anytime through the end of August 4th, and then on Wednesday the 5th at 8 p.m., there'll be the conversation with the filmmakers. More information at interfaithpowerandlight.org. Now, coming up uh, Wednesday through Friday, it's the 2020 Midwest Regional Sustainability Summit, a multi-day virtual event. It starts at 7 p.m. on Wednesday for a couple hours, uh, and then it's 1230 to 5 p.m. on Thursday and Friday. The 2020 Midwest Regional Sustainability Summit will explore the theme Cities of the Future, Becoming a Regenerative Region, and imagine how cities can become regenerative hubs that enhance rather than deplete our natural resources that promote a vibrant, resilient, built environment and that support healthy, equitable communities. By examining innovative strategies to link rural, urban, and suburban communities, we can identify new opportunities to build regions that are both socially and environmentally resilient. Now, a major highlight of this year's summit will be the Wednesday keynote address at 7 p.m. on Wednesday the 5th by Majora Carter, an award-winning urban revitalization strategy and corporate consultant. She's the founder of Sustainable South Bronx and Green for All and has worked at the intersection of race, place, and environment for over two decades. Her work in the South Bronx has transformed a once blighted community into a hub of opportunity and advancement for all residents of all backgrounds. There will also be a sustainability awards ceremony and a plenary panel featuring Majora Carter, Jamie Love, who is Associate Director of U.S. Programs at the Institute for 
for Sustainable Communities and Victoria Parks, Commissioner at Hamilton County Commissioner Office, as well as 21 different breakout sessions with dynamic sustainability leaders exploring how cities can become regenerative hubs. And one Friday speaker of particular interest to us will be Natalie Vezina, the Sustainability Coordinator for Louisville Metro Government's Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability. She focuses on developing climate action solutions, working with private investors to finance energy efficiency and renewable energy projects, and implementing strategies to mitigate urban heat. Natalie also leads citywide sustainability plan initiatives. You can learn more at MidwestSustainabilitySummit.org. Again, the Majora Carter keynote kicks it off at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, and then there'll be events and sessions Thursday and Friday from 1230 to 5 p.m. Learn more at MidwestSustainabilitySummit.org. Now, coming up this Thursday, the 6th at 1.30 p.m., it's the next webinar from the Ohio River Recreational Trail.org. And this time on Thursday, the 6th at 1.30, it's the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail and Sustainable Tourism in the Ohio River Valley, featuring panelists uh, Dan Wiley, he's Chief of Integrated Resource Stewardship at the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail Headquarters, Derek Schimmel, he's Project and Communications Manager for Solomar International, and Seth Wheat, Director of Tourism Development for the Kentucky Department of Tourism. With the 1,200-mile extension of the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail in May 2019, a fourth major North American river became an official part of the trail. Yes, our own Ohio River joined the Mississippi, Missouri, and Columbia Rivers. The Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail Experience Project is designed to support the public's use and enjoyment of the trail without adversely impacting the resources along it. This geotourism project engages residents, enterprises, communities, and visitors in shared environmental and cultural heritage stewardship. The National Park Service has built a new travel website at lewisandclark.travel that is specifically designed to bring together businesses to help promote sustainable tourism. They're working with the Ohio River Recreational Trail to garner as big a following as possible in and around the Ohio River in Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio. The second component of the webinar will focus on state resources to help tourism infrastructure of river towns and the value of being designated as a trail town by your state. This webinar will be Thursday, August 6th, 1.30 to 3 p.m., and you can learn more and get registered at OhioRiverRecreationalTrail.org. Now, also on Thursday, August 6th, from 2 to 3 p.m., it's a Lazy 8 Stock Farm virtual tour hosted by Oak, the Organic Association of Kentucky. This virtual tour will join Bryce Bauman as he walks us through operations on his Lazy 8 Stock Farm in Paintlick, Kentucky. We'll see pre-recorded video footage from his 420-acre certified organic, diverse vegetable production, and brought in the context within a live conversation with Bryce and your questions the Lazy 8 Tour will include CSA share assembly in the Lazy 8 Packhouse, organic seed starting and transplanting in the heated floor greenhouse, field tours with the organic production techniques of brassicas, tomatoes, salad greens, and trestled beans, and solar energy production and associated funding assistance. Pre-registration for this great virtual tour on Thursday is required, so visit oak-ky.org 
slash field dash days for more information and to register. Again, it's Thursday the 6th, 2 to 3 p.m. And you can go to oak-ky.org slash field dash days to get registered. Now, I also want to let you know about another great webinar series that continues this Thursday at 3 p.m. It's No Waste Louisville, K-N-O-W Waste Louisville. It's a webinar series that continues on Thursday at 3 p.m. with the topic of hard-to-dispose items. You can learn at this webinar how to properly dispose of difficult items like batteries, light bulbs, and paint. All webinars are presented live at 3 p.m. through WebEx. You can register and find recordings of previous webinars at louisvillewastedistrict.org slash webinars. So there's already been two of these. On July 23rd, it was How to Recycle Right. Then we heard about backyard composting. And this Thursday at the 6th at 3 p.m., we'll hear about hard-to-dispose items. And I want to let you know, coming up on August 13th, it's Louisville Waste Collection. Learn about Louisville's complex waste collection system and why it is different depending on where you live. And then it wraps up on August 20th with Illegal Dumping. Learn about how the city handles illegal dumping and ways to prevent it. Again, you can get registered and get more information and watch recordings of previous sessions at louisvillewastedistrict.org slash webinars. This coming Friday, August 7th at 11 a.m., it's Youth Voices, our local food system and food justice. The Food Literacy Project invites you to join the Youth Community Agriculture Program on Friday the 7th at 11 a.m. live on Facebook at facebook.com slash the food literacy project. This summer, the YCAP crew studied our local food system and food justice and how to make a positive impact through direct action. The crew explored community, responsibility, power, and initiative, commitment, courage, and hope through virtual workshops and conversations with local leaders. The crew engaged in the hard work of farming and shared fresh food grown on Iroquois Urban Farm with South Louisville and Southwest Community Ministries, Ag in the City, Feed the West, and Backside Learning Center students who are enrolled in the Food Literacy Project's Field the Fork Clubs. It feels good to be bringing fresh local food to our neighbors and join us on Friday at 11 a.m. as we discuss what we have learned this summer. Again, Friday 11 a.m., go to facebook.com slash the food literacy project. And I also want to let you know about the pop-up farmer's market taking place at the Opportunity Community Garden over there at 18th and Magazine. Uh, Louisville Metro has partnered with Louisville Grows and Black Community Development Corporation to turn a former vacant lot into Opportunity Corner, a functional space with edible landscaping, a community garden, and shipping containers that will serve as pop-up office and retail space to support budding entrepreneurs as part of a broader Vision Russell plan. Well, after successfully celebrating its opening on July 25th, the festivities continue with pop-up farmers markets every Saturday in August from 9 a.m. to noon. Make sure to stop by to support your local farmers and the Russell neighborhood. Again, it's at the corner of 18th Street and Magazine Saturday the 8th from 9 a.m. to noon, and it'll continue every Saturday in August. And lastly, I want to let you know that coming up Sunday, August 9th from 2 to 4 p.m. and continuing every other week via Zoom, it's Dismantling Radio. 
racism, living now and into the future, Sunday study circles. The goal of this program is to increase racial awareness, raise racial literacy, and inspire action for racial equity in our community. We do this by becoming aware, opening our eyes, opening our hearts, educating ourselves, and transforming our thoughts, ideas, and action to create true oneness in our world. This will be held every other week, and it's sponsored by Unity of Louisville, so you can learn more about these Sunday study circles, 2 to 4 p.m. every other Sunday at unityoflouisville.org. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Stay tuned to Forward Radio. Lots of great stuff coming up, and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Stay safe. Stay masked up. Stay six feet apart. Summer rain, yeah, yeah, come and take.